All right, Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, we are going to be covering verses 11 through 18. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 18. The title that you have in the uh, bulletin is not the title this morning. The title this morning is Christ's Death Perfects the Sanctified. Uh, I failed to get Jane um, the, uh, the outline for this morning. So as we go through it this morning, I will, I'll give you uh, the outline. But Christ's Death Perfects the Sanctified. Let's begin reading in verse 11. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified." Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would meet with us through your word. Lord, I have prepared, I have written notes. But Lord, if it is not met by the Holy Spirit and placed upon the hearts of the hearers, Father, it is futile. Father, I pray that your word would accomplish what you desire for it to accomplish this morning. Lord, I know that your word does not return void, unlike unlike the words of man. So, Father, be gracious to us. Minister to us through your word. What we know not, I pray that you would teach us. What we are not, I pray that you would make us, that we would be vessels meet for your use. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the sufficiency of Christ's perfect sacrifice cannot be overstated. The sufficiency of that sacrifice cannot be uh, it could, we could go on and on about this and we still could not say all that there is to say about this. And so the author, Paul, in my opinion, Paul the Apostle, the author of Hebrews, as he has done uh, up to this point, continues to drive home the point of Christ's effective once-for-all sacrifice that, that perfects forever the sanctified. That's been the theme really over the last couple of chapters is that Christ's sacrifice is enough. It is sufficient, and, and even, even as much as sufficient as it is effectual. That is, it has the desired effect that God intended for it to have. Now, the primary theme in Hebrews has been the supremacy of Christ. It's been the preeminence of Christ. It's been, uh, some people have termed it, that Jesus is better. Now, a question that may come, that some of us may have, is, What's his point? Why has he been so adamant about this? Well, why does he seem like he says the same thing over and over again? Well, it's actually quite simple. And it's this, that our gaze is to be stayed on Christ no matter what we are going through. Let me remind you that 
the, the, the recipients of the letter of Hebrews had experienced a time of persecution, then they had gone through a time of tranquility, and now they are under persecution again, and they are tempted to go back to the old way, to the old system. And so what Paul is making the point in Hebrews is to say that, hey, Jesus is enough even in your time of persecution. Now consider that the Hebrews' livelihood and their very life was at stake over being called a Christian, over being identified as a follower of Christ. Which, by the way, when Caesar was, was in charge in those days, you were deemed an antichrist if you did not say that, G, that Caesar is Lord. And the Christians would not say that. They said, Jesus is Lord and we will bow to none but Christ. We will not bow to Caesar. And so our mind in, in times of turmoil, in times of suffering, in times of persecution, our hearts are to be stayed on Christ for He is enough to sustain us in, in those times. And we, we have a tendency um, as humans to put, uh, put our trust in something tangible, something that we can see. But if God has worked effectually through us or in us by His gospel, then we have something that is tangible and that, it, that does offer evidence, and that is faith, as we'll see when we get to chapter um, 11. So, and as we've walked through Hebrews, we've seen that there's been this pattern of exposition or explanation of a great doctrinal truth, and then there has, it has been followed by uh, exhortation or warning to, to stay faithful, to remain faithful, to uh, hold fast your profession of faith. Now, the temptation that they were, were wanting to go back to was the old system. And some of us may wonder, well, I thought Jesus done away with those animal sacrifices. Well, the truth was that animal sacrifices continued in the, in, with the Jews to, for those who rejected Christ. They'd done those in obedience to the old covenant. They didn't see Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They saw Him as a, as a good guy, as a teacher but they didn't see Him as the Christ. And so those sacrifices continued until A.D. 70 when the, when the temple was destroyed by the Roman army. However, for the Christian, the community, the Christian community, the sacrifices ceased upon Christ's death and resurrection. Why? Let me remind you again that the veil in the temple where the high priest went behind to offer the blood for the sacrifice, it was rent in twain, and it was restore. It was uh, exposing those things that were insufficient. Now that Christ had died, and this is a likeness to this offering of the sacrifice is a likeness to works based salvation. And what they were saying about with those offering of those sacrifice was sacri- Christ's sacrifice was not enough. It was not sufficient. We need to do more. When we add anything to the work that Christ accomplished in His death. We are essentially trying to nullify that sacrifice. What we're essentially trying to say that what Jesus done, though it was good, was not enough. For us to try to add good works or, or whatever we desire to do to salvation, it's to nullify the sacrifice of Christ. And as we have seen repeatedly through Scripture, and as we will see again today, that this sacrifice was sufficient. It, was, it accomplished what God intended. Paul, the author, has been driving this point home that the old system was temporary. It was a shadow of the good things to come. It was merely a prototype of what was to come. Christ 
is the fulfillment of that old system. I remember when we went through the temple back in uh, uh, the early part of Rome uh, of Hebrews chapter 9 where all of those things pointed to Christ. The showbread pointed to Christ as the bread of life. Um, and so on and so forth. The sacrifice pointed to Him as the Lamb who would take away our sins. And we, we've seen that insufficiency over and over. We've seen that Christ is the fulfillment of that. And Paul, even in his other letters, makes this point as well. If you would, turn to Colossians chapter 2. Turn over a, little, a few pages, if you will, sort of, to Colossians chapter 2. <clears throat> Verse 16 and verse 17. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is Christ. He is reinforcing here the point um, that that uh, the observance of these Jewish Sabbath feast days, the monthly new moons and annual feasts and whatnot, were advocated to appease supernatural powers or angels. They were thought to direct the uh, the course of the stars. They were seen to regulate the calendar and even determine human destiny. This is a form of legalism, if you will. They were saying, telling these Colossians that you have to hold to these things. You have to adhere to these things. And what we see, for instance, in Galatians, is Paul has to address this over and over again as false teaching, as false doctrine. Paul called this a form of bondage from which Christ came to liberate men and women from. And Paul's not speaking uh, of a weekly of a weekly day of rest and, and worship, such as Sunday. There's some people who would call this day a Sabbath day. It's a day. It is a day of rest for us, for many of us. But it's not a day of do absolutely nothing. It's a day of that we gather as the body of believers. We gather as the people called out of this world by God to make known uh, him his his self uh, himself among us to preach His Word, to sing praise. Next week, we will take communion. We will take the Lord's Supper. We see how God works through all these things. But it was was Paul also who pointed out in in 1 Corinthians 5-7 that Jesus is our Passover Lamb. Jesus, upon His institution of the Lord's Supper, pointed to Himself as the sacrifice for our sins. So there's enough evidence in all the Scripture. We could spend our whole time here this morning going through this of showing how Jesus Himself said that He was the Passover, and also that Christ, or, or Paul said that, uh, that Christ was sufficient for that as well. So then it should be no surprise as we go back to Hebrews that Paul would go to such lengths, even repeating himself, to show the supremacy of Christ when compared to the old system that they were tempted to go back to. That, Paul, that Jesus was above all that. Jesus was superior to all of that. Now, that brings us back to our text in Hebrews chapter 10. And the first point is this, the effectual once for all sacrifice seen in verse 11 through 13. Now, some of this should have seemed familiar to you as we read this of Scripture that we've looked at in the past. Look at verse 11. 
And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Verse 12, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Now, there's a contrast right there that I'm going to bring your attention to here in a moment. But we see also in verse 13, till his enemies would be made his footstool. And Then on and on we'll see a reference back to Jeremiah 31 through 34. But what we get a picture of here is the immediate effect of Christ's sacrifice upon upon it was the clearing of the conscience of the, and the forgiveness of sin seen in the promise of the new covenant. Remember back in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, he said, A new covenant will I give you. I will write my law upon your heart, um, so on and so forth. So we see the immediate effect of the once for all sacrifice is the writing of the law upon the conscience of believers. In the old covenant, the law was written on tables and stones Uh, and scrolls, and now it is written on the heart. So the second immediate effect of this, that this is sub-point B underneath this, is he writes his law on our hearts. Now, that's not a literal writing of his law on our hearts and our conscience, but that he teaches us his word by his Spirit. Jesus said that when that I must go away, I'll I'll bring the Comforter, another Comforter, and and he goes on to say that that, that the Comforter will lead you into all truth. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit that leads us into the truth of God's Word. By, by the way, a work of the Spirit is to expose falsehood. It's to alert us when we hear false teaching. And the only way, though, that we can know that is if we're studying God's Word. What do we have to judge that false teaching by? So, in the old days, that the law was written on tables of stone. It was inscribed upon scrolls. Uh, we see that in Exodus 34.1, also in Deuteronomy 31.9-13. But then he gives a, the idea of what was to take place in Deuteronomy 6.4-9, that they were to internalize God's law. As a matter of fact, Jesus, when He came in His Sermon on the Mount, that's what exactly what He exposes, is that the law is more than external. And actually what He expo- tells us is, one, uh, our problem with keeping the law is our own depraved nature. And so we see the law as not being written on a table of stone necessarily now, but it is written upon our hearts. And, and look, the evidence of that is when we sin, that God's Spirit convicts us. When, when we covet something that we shouldn't covet, or we lie, or we steal, or whatever the case may be, that we, uh, we are convicted of the Holy Spirit if you are born again. Now that's the difference, that there, there's two uh, you want to get down to the classes of people, if we can say it that way. You're either born again or you're not. You're either lost and you're on your way to hell or you are born again by the Spirit of God. And your greatest need if you are lost is to know Christ and Him crucified. So going back to verse 11 and 12, to prove the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice, Paul gives us a contrast between the two covenants, basically. That's what 11 and 12 are. And so if you, want to, if you want to write, I've written these side by side in my notes so I can separate them. If you want to write these down, um, that, that, that's fine. Verse 11, notice verse 11. He says, and every priest standeth daily. Like this was a ritual that they had, had done. There were sacrifices that they had to offer day after day. There was the annual sacrifice, though, that they had to offer, the, the, the sacrifice of atonement. 
Then verse 12 says, but this man. The word but there is to, other, to say on the other hand. So we could say that while the priest daily offered, on the other hand, this man. Well, what did this man do? Well, the second thing, we, the contrast that we see is every priest. There was a succession of priests that offered these sacrifices. We see the ineffectiveness, the temporary really nature of the sacrifices that every, every generation there was priests that would offer these sacrifices. So there was this succession of priests that came through the Levitical priesthood. But this man, there, there's a distinction there of saying this man pointing to Christ. This sets Jesus apart from these other priests. It sets Jesus apart. Matter of fact, we'd seen in chapter 7 and, and in the chapter 8 that Jesus was li- or likened to Melchizedek. And that, that this, that Melchizedek, nobody, nobody knew anything about Melchizedek because he didn't have a history and he didn't know, nobody knew when he died. And so we see with Jesus that he is different than these other priests and he offered, as we'll see, his sacrifice once. Notice next that this man stands, the priest stands, the high priest, back to verse 11, and every priest standeth. When you're standing, there's the idea that something is unfinished, right? That idea that something is undone, that the work is not complete. Well, what about Jesus? What did Jesus do? He sat down. Now, when, when, you, when you go out into the garden or whatever the case may be, and you come in to rest, what do you normally do? You sit down. Some of us may lay down, right? But nonetheless, there, there's a sense of accomplishment and there's a sense of finality. Next, he offers again and again. Look at verse 11. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices. There was this repetition that kept going on with these sacrifices. And it was the same sacrifice, not the same animal that they burned and then all that stuff, but the same type of animal. It was the same, it was an animal sacrifice that they had to offer. Notice about verse 12. He offered one sacrifice. It was over with. There was no need to offer any other sacrifice. And then, this is the greatest point about all this. Look at the end of verse 11. The sacrifices that these um, um, finite men would offer, these men who constantly offer these things, notice the last phrase, which can never take away sins. I bring your attention back to verse 4 of chapter 10. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. So there was this real sense of, uh, of uh, a lack of satisfaction in the sacrifice of Christ. It would never, or not Christ, but these animals, it would never take away sin. Again, pointing to its temporary nature, pointing to it only being a shadow of what was to come. Now notice the contrast there in verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins... His sacrifice was over. When Jesus offered His sacrifice, it said that it was sufficient and that it done away with everything else. So we see this contrast that He has made as the effectual sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then the third effect of this sacrifice, it is yet to be fully realized. Notice verse 13. From henceforth... So he, Jesus... Let's get the picture here. Jesus comes to this earth as a baby, lives as a man, lives a life that we should live, dies the death that we should die, is raised from the grave on the third day, then ascends back to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. 
And upon sitting at the right hand of the Father to show the finality of His sacrifice, the effectiveness of His sacrifice, it says, from henceforth, meaning from that point, expecting till His enemies be made His footstool. Now, since the time of His ascension, Christ has been waiting for the moment when His enemies will be made His footstool. Now, we've got a couple of questions we need to deal with. First of all, he waits as a farmer waiting for the harvest, right? I mean, there's a time where you plow, you plant, and then you're waiting for the harvest, right? You're waiting for the fruit to come in. Well, Jesus has done his work, and now he's waiting for, for that time. Now, that is in verse 12, uh, 7 of Daniel chapter 12, the gospel being scattered to the ends of the earth. We see references to that in other parts of the scripture. So it's not that, that, that they're waiting. Jesus is waiting on some kind of covenant with Israel and the Middle East and all that kind of stuff. It's not necessarily events that he's waiting on. He is waiting for the gathering of his sheep whom God has given to him, whom he purchased with his sacrifice for them to come into the kingdom. And that's why we preach the gospel. That's why we preach the gospel thoroughly. That's why we preach a bloody gospel as we see, and that's essentially uh, what it is, is to call the unbelieving to repentance. So two questions we need to deal with real quick. Who are the enemies of Christ? Who are the enemies of Christ? Well, and and then the second one we'll deal with real quick is when will this take place? And and I'll just explain that to you. At the end of the age, when, when the kingdom has been brought in, so let's deal with the enemies of Christ. Let me just say this real quick. <clears throat> Anyone who opposes the kingdom and the work of the gospel is an enemy of Christ. If you oppose the work of the gospel, if you oppose the preaching of the gospel, if you oppose the advancement of the gospel, if you oppose the kingdom of Jesus Christ, you are declaring yourself to be an enemy of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we submit to God's word. And unless you repent and believe the gospel, you will spend an eternity in hell. And let me say this about the last enemy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26, the last enemy is death. The last enemy to be conquered is death. This was set in motion by Christ's own death and resurrection. Um, it is the putting away of death in the new heavens and the new earth. That's why there will be no dying there. We long for heaven because there will be no presence of sin. There will be no presence of death. There will be no mourning. Um, And this will take place when Jesus returns. So, that's why we ought in a very real sense be saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? That we long to be in that place. Look, I don't know about you. I, I, I realize this the older I get. I'm tired of dealing not with aches and pains, but with sin. I just want to get to a point where I can be perfect where I don't have to worry about uh, covetous or lustful thoughts or saying things in anger or whatnot. I want to be like the one who purchased my salvation. The second point is the eternal perfection of the saints. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for the eternal perfection of the saints. Now let me give you a couple of definitions here. Perfected. What does it mean to be perfected? Well, it's the process that begins at salvation. It's not a fully realized state. We do not. I I know there are some that teach this, but we are not sinlessly perfect upon salvation. We still have to deal with this body of sin. We still have this flesh to deal with. 
But to be perfect means to be complete, to make perfect um, or mature by reaching the intended goal. So the idea that we see with this perfection is that we are working towards an intended goal. What, what is the goal for every believer? Well, we'll see here in a moment that it is to, uh, to, be, uh, to know God, to do His will, and to grow to spiritual maturity. But let, let, me, let me give you a couple more definitions before we get to that point. So with this perfection, particularly with the meaning to bring to a full end, completion, to finish the work, uh, uh, to finish the work or duty. Now, you think about Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will do what? Will complete it. Christ, or God, who began the work of salvation in you upon the moment of regeneration, will see that through to the very end. Now, the intended goal, as I said, is one, to know God. John 17.3. This is followed by a life of love and the execution of Christ's commandments. If you want to know God, obey the commands of Christ. If you want to know God, know His Word. Know what is expected. Also, to do His will. Jesus said, I didn't come to do my own will. I came to do the will of the Father. For every born-again believer, our will is to do the will of the Father. And then thirdly, it's to grow to spiritual maturity. There's... there's the, uh, the very real sense. Matter of fact, in Hebrews 6, 1 through 3, we covered that a while back uh, about moving on to perfection. It's moving on to spiritual maturity. God does not save us to sit in a state of immaturity. He saves us that we would grow. We, we see these commands throughout the Scripture. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, we, we'll see next week that he, He'll say that we are, are, are to... Give a good confession. That can only happen um, by our growth as a Christian. And how is this accomplished? Well, it's accomplished, one, by His Spirit. Because He puts His Spirit within us to lead us in the truth. It's accomplished by His Word, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and righteousness, that the man of God may be perfectly furnished unto all good works. And then 2 Peter 1, 16-20, Peter says that we have a more sure word of prophecy. More so, he says, than me being on the Mount of Transfiguration with the Christ Himself and witnessing that we have a more sure word of prophecy, and that is the Word of God. So we must give ourselves to know the Word of God. We must give ourselves to the Word of God. And then thirdly, this is where we will spend um, probably the, the, the rest, of, well, obviously the rest of our time. And it may seem like a, 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 an odd point, um, but it's, and I've, I've labeled it this way, either eternal or divine amnesia. That, that God doesn't remember our sin, basically. When He forgives you, when you come to Him by faith, repenting of your sin, and He gives you that forgiveness, He doesn't bring that up ever again. Unlike us in our fallen estate, when we get in an argument with our spouse, what's the first thing that starts working in our mind? Well, back in 19-whatever, you done this or you said this. We have a tendency to bring those arguments up, right? Well, God doesn't do that. When we don't, do what, when we don't follow His will, He doesn't say... Well, you, if you would have done it back in 1994, you wouldn't be having this issue with me, right? He doesn't remember our sin. He forgets our sin. 
Like, and it's not that he says, well, I'll, for, I'll forgive you, but I'll never forget. He never says that. How many times have we said that? I'll forgive, but I'm not going to forget what happened. Well, God doesn't remember those sins. And, and think about that, that He would willingly not remember those things. That He would willingly not bring our sin back to us. I have enough trouble remembering some of the stupid things that I've done that violated His law. But He, he, he not only forgives, but He does forget. Man, what, what a blessing that is. So look at verse 17 and 18. This is a quote from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And I want to bring your, your attention to one word here. And their sins and iniquities, excuse me, <coughs> will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no offering, there's no more offering for sin. There is a reason why a believer says it's under the blood. Because it is literally under the blood of Christ. When you come to faith in Christ, repenting of your sin your sins are placed under the blood of Christ. What is this remission? It's to cause to stand away, to release one's sins from the sinner. For this to take place, it required the sacrifice of Christ. For God to be able to forgive us, for Him to release us from the bondage of sin that we will see, something had to take place. Jesus Christ had to had to offer Himself as a sacrifice. Hence, we see the putting away of sin and the deliverance of the power of sin. Now, for those of us who are in Christ, we still have the presence of sin within us. We battle that flesh on a daily basis. But we no longer have the power of sin. That is, we are no longer in bondage to sin. Now, this is important. Sins are the cord that keep us bound away from God. You want to know why people don't follow God? Because they're bound by their sin in their lost state. Man became a sinner, or I'm sorry, man became a slave to sin because of the fall of Adam. Turn to Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> Romans chapter 5, verse 12. When someone wants to argue with you about the depravity of man and the sinfulness of man, bring them to this verse. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon how many? All. Every single individual experiences death or will experience death. For that all have sinned. Turn over to chapter 6, verse 17 and verse 20. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, that's the gospel, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Now, I've made this statement before and, and this is where we get it from. You're either a slave to sin you are either in bondage to sin or you are in bondage to Christ. Now, sin is not as a benevolent master as Christ is. 
Right? Sin has consequences and, and, and things that we experience. But in our fallen state, we are presented as prisoners to sin. We're enslaved, we're in, we're in shackles to sin. And definitely in need of a deliverer, right? I mean, think about Paul in the prison. He, him and Silas were shackled up. They needed someone to deliver them from that prison. And the Holy Spirit done that. Look at Luke chapter 4, verse 18. We get a picture of this in, in Jesus' message in Luke chapter 4. <clears throat> Luke chapter 4, 18 is a quote. We won't turn there from Isaiah 61, 1 if you want to look at that later on. This is Jesus speaking of Himself, of His ministry that He was sent by the Father to do. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. By the way, Jesus Himself had the Spirit without measure. Because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, that's not the the financially poor. That's those who are poor in spirit, as as Matthew 5 says. That's those who realize their lost state. That's those who realize their spiritual bankruptcy. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted to preach deliverance to the captives. Captive to what? We'll see here in a moment. And recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty from uh, them that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, which would be the return of the Lord. But look, notice a couple things. Recovering of sight to the blind. That's not physical healings, folks. That's, that's spiritual in nature. You think about what Jesus said in John 3, 3 to Nicodemus. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, he cannot comprehend that which is spiritual in a natural state. So we are in need of a deliverer. Man is, pre- is presented as a prisoner of war, a captive. His captivity is due to the sin of Adam, as we saw in Romans, but it's, in, it's due also to our own sin that we continue in as well. No, and there's no designation here in chapter 4 of Luke as to what the deliverance is from. It just says he's there to preach deliverance. However, the work of Christ is designated as deliverance from everything that holds man a prisoner. And according to the Scripture, that is sin. It holds us a prisoner and we must be delivered from that. <clears throat> Now we see that he's... So, the works of Christ is designated as deliverance from everything that holds man in a prisoner. Now setting sinful man free would have been a very dangerous thing. Think about this. If God would have just set us free from sin, what do you think would have happened? We would have continued to sin. There's something that's got to take place. Think about it this way. How many... How many newscasts are we seeing that prisoners are being set free from prison and they're going back doing the things that they were doing. That's common these days. I mean, this whole COVID thing, they released a whole bunch of prisoners and what did they do? Did they think they were reformed? No, they went back and done the same thing they had done before. If God does not, that the significance here is that if there's not a change in nature, then we would continue to sin. It's not just a setting of us free. It is a complete change in our nature. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
If you want to look there, if not, write it down. You can look at it later. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And there's another scripture you can look at. I, I, won't, I won't read it, but you can write it down. 2 Peter 1, 4. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation or creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The, the picture that's lost in salvation for many of us is it's not a turning over of a new leaf. It's not pulling oneself up by their bootstraps and determining that they're going to do better. It is a complete change in your nature. Is that to the point now where you no longer love the things that you once loved, but you loathe those. Remember uh, Ezekiel 36 verse uh, 32 or 31 that we would loathe our sin. A man's freedom from sin is not one that permits him to continue in sin. This is why the doctrine of once saved, always saved has been dangerous for many of us is that if we make this profession of faith, then we can do what we want to do. That's not the case that we see in Scripture. If we claim to be what we, ought, what we say we are, that God has saved us, then there, there has to be a change, a complete change, a 180. That you no longer love those things that you once did, you now loathe those. And the things that you once loathed, that you now love. Meaning that there is a scriptural, that scriptural component there. So Christ doesn't merely take man from sin to set him free. He radically changes his nature so as he no longer is a slave to sin. Now, if we are no longer a slave to sin, and we have been radically changed, we are therefore a slave to Christ. Now, I'm not going to answer this question this week, but I want to leave you thinking about this. Why does Jesus do it this way? Why does He forgive us? Why does He change our nature? Why does He do these things? Why does He do it in this manner? Why does He unshackle us from sin? Well, if you could just look back over, if you're in Hebrews, look back over the page at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. This will give you the direction where I'm going with the text that I gave you this morning for next week. Talking about the sacrifice of Christ again. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purged you from your dead works to serve the living God. God doesn't save you to come sit and soak and sour. God saves us to serve. He saves us to serve His church. There is a a commitment to Christ is therefore a commitment to His church. You can't say, I love Jesus, but I don't like His church. Folks, that's like saying... I love one kid, but I don't love the other, right? I've got three of them that I love equally. And if I love one more so than I love some of them, think that they, we love those than we do the others, but you know how that works with kids. We, we can't say that. We, we must, if we're going to say I'm committed to Christ, we must commit ourselves to His church. Now, what does that look like? We will see that next week. I, I would encourage you to dig into the passage that I gave you this week and look at that and see what that look, looks like and begin to examine yourself and see how are you living in light of being a slave of Christ. Folks, what Jesus is a benevolent master. 
He's not one that is cruel to his people. Yes, we'll see it later on in Hebrews 12 that we get disciplined, but it's for our benefit. It's because he loves us. It's not because he despises us. So, as we go through this week and we think about the sacrifice of Christ, it was not just given to save us. It was also given to sanctify us, to make us more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, the one who has purchased our redemption. Let's pray.